I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles. We're going to continue in our worship service here, looking at the book of Titus. We're finishing up our study of Titus as we've taken this little excursion away from Acts into Titus, and then we'll be back to Acts here soon. And uh, next week we have a special service um, because uh, it's our special time where we will be uh, uh, commissioning Ron and Jen to go to Canada because they will be leaving soon. They will be leaving just days after that, and uh, and and it'll be a special service. And I'm excited. Please come. It's going to be a wonderful opportunity to commission our missionaries to go into this work, and uh, we'll be sharing what will be happening and having a time of prayer and celebration. So that is next Sunday, and I am excited about that. This Sunday, though, we're looking at the book of Titus. It's been a wonderful study. If this is your first Sunday here, I'll, I'll get you caught up quickly here on what we studied in Titus, because it's a, it's a wonderful book where, where Paul is encouraging Titus to establish this church in Crete. And he's, what, he's, what he wants from this church is that they would understand their role in the culture, they would understand their role in the community, they would engage it fully by having a church with established leaders that will shepherd them and uh, not give way to uh, false teaching and heresy, that they would also have um, uh, the families established correctly in such a way that they would, would lead forth with, with character, the older men, the y- older women, younger men, younger women, that they would have character and a sense of, of, of dignity as they engage this world with the, the character that comes from the gospel. Because what God wants is for us to engage this world in such a way that we show them the grace and mercy of God. God responds to sinners with grace, mercy, service, love. And he's saying, I want you to make that your life purpose. I want you to make that your life purpose. And that's what we've been studying. Today, we're going to finish up by looking at verses 8 through 15. And as we look at this, we're going to really get the heartbeat of this letter. And I believe a very challenging message for us. But before we jump into it, let's just pray together. Join me in prayer. God, I thank you for this reminder of the cross. Lord, I know even for myself coming in here today with many distractions on my mind and many issues um, that, that can come and that have come into uh, my, even my focus today, Lord, I needed to be reminded of the cross and grace and mercy. And Lord, uh, all of us need this, and I'm grateful, Lord, that we can now tune our hearts to your word today. Lord, all of us, I pray that that's what would happen, that this would be a moment when we would hear that pitch of your word, and that where we are out of tune and out of sync today would be that day where we would bind together in humility, in honesty about our weaknesses, in honesty about our sin, and and, and we would find the comfort of your word tuning us so that we might walk in the way that you've designed us to walk. Thank you, God, for this moment. Thank you for the reminder of the cross. I pray now that we would, uh, that we would genuinely engage what you would have for us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're looking here, like I said, in, uh, in Titus chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. And 
And as we look at it, I was thinking this week a little bit about um, the military, actually, as I was looking at this passage. And I was thinking about the fact that, that if you ever served in the military, you'll know about this. Uh, but in the military, there's a thing called general orders. General orders are a general set of orders that are consistent throughout every branch of the military. There's about 11 of them. It doesn't matter, Army, Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, they all have these general orders. And, 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 and there's, like I said, 11 of them, and, and they, they, they lay out the basic uh, set of operating orders that govern everybody who's in the service. Let me give you an example of why it's important. Let's just say you're you know, a lowly enlisted man, and you are standing guard somewhere. You're standing outside a building, and you're, you're just the guard there. And a general pulls up in his car, and uh, of course, you know, four-star general. He's been in forever and can you know, change your career in a heartbeat. He's got that much power. And he drives up, and he says, hey, help me unload my car. And you're on guard duty. You can actually tell that general, no, I can't do it. And the general will say, hey, I'm a four-star general. You've only been in 15 minutes. I can ruin your career. And you can say, no, because one of the general orders is, I am not allowed to leave my post until properly relieved, and I have not been properly relieved. I have to stand this post until properly relieved. You see, that's what general orders do. They give the operating system for the military so that they can have a basic understanding of what's going to happen, and everybody is bound by these operating systems. I was thinking about that because it becomes important at moments like that for, for somebody. What do I do here? How do I handle this? I'm supposed to stand in front of this door, and I'm supposed to guard this door, and a general pulls up, and now I don't know what to do. I default back to the general order. And the general order gives me a way of kind of defaulting back to say this is how I'm going to respond. I know how I'm supposed to respond. I have kind of 11 operating systems, 11 points that I can bring these complex situations back to to help me know how to respond. In many ways, the closing verses of Titus chapter 3, these verses 8, really through the end of the book, represent the general orders for the church. The general operating system. The things that you should have that are kind of hanging in the background so that when you're in a situation you say, what should I do here? You can default back to it. And you say, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do here. So when you don't know what to do, you have something to kind of tune yourself towards. And that's what these verses represent. There are three general orders here, as I'm just calling them. I'm just using that as a framework. Paul doesn't call them general orders. I'm just calling them that. Three kind of basic principles, basic operating systems that are really important. And I will tell you, in some ways, this will be a review of the book of Titus. It's nothing new. But in other ways, these general orders are super helpful for us because, as we're going to see as this text unfolds, they do address probably the biggest threat that we face in our church today and in any church. I would say the biggest threat facing the church in our culture today is addressed in this passage. And this general order gives us what we need to be able to respond appropriately to that threat. So we're going to see that. I just thought I would kind of toss out a, a big teaser there. 
to keep you in the game here. So I, I hope that you'll see this, but I actually hope that it actually does encourage you because what I want you to understand, and this is the key, I think, to the whole book of Titus and the big lesson I've learned from Titus, is that being a Christian is more than just what I believe. It does start there, that there's a basic belief that I have, an understanding of truth, an understanding of God, an understanding of salvation. But being a Christian isn't just solely measured on that basis. Being a Christian is also not just what I believe, but actually how I engage. This is the focal point, and you'll see this throughout the New Testament, but you see it throughout Titus. It's also how I engage the world. That God has left me here to engage. He's left me here to be an engager and to engage in a way that reflects the way he engages. The interesting thing about God is that God is an engaging God. He moves, he's aggressive, he's assertive, and he inserts himself into situations. And when he saves us, he says, now I want you to show the world how assertive I am and the way I am in that. And that Christianity isn't just that I can articulate an accurate creedal statement. Christianity is believing the right things about God and engaging the way God engages. And that's what Titus teaches us. How do we engage? Okay. So let's look at this. And I I want you to see this here today. It's very powerful. Let's look here, though, at our first general order. This is your first kind of operating system. Very clear. He says, devote yourself to a profitable way of life. That's how I would summarize that. Devote yourself to a profitable way of life. Look at verse 8. He says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now, we're in the middle of a thought, and he just concluded a big thought there, um, starting in verse 3, when he talks about how we were foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to our passions and our lusts and things like that. And then in verse 4, he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of the things we've done, the works we've done in righteousness, but by his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Spirit, he poured that out through Jesus, our Savior. We were justified by his grace, and we're heirs with the hope of eternal life. And so he lays out all these wonderful things. We, we looked at them last week. These wonderful things that we got in salvation, and how we were saved, how God engaged us. And I believe verse 8 is he's saying, now listen, Everything that I just said about the gospel is trustworthy. <clears throat> is trustworthy. Now, why would he say this? Paul uses the word trustworthy a lot. Every time he defines the gospel, he always says somewhere around it, it's a trustworthy saying. It's a common saying of Paul. Trustworthy saying means this. It, it, it means that this saying is so powerful It's worth altering your whole life for. It's so important. It's so true that it's worth changing everything in your life. That's what trustworthy means. It means that you can actually bank your life on the promises and the statements that are there. You've heard me use this illustration. This is the one I like to use. It really would be like if I did have a pile of cash in this room... 
you know, trillions of dollars, and I said, you can come in tomorrow and take, you know, a million dollars for yourself, and you see the cash, and you believe the cash, <coughs> that would absolutely change the way you lived your afternoon. Some of you might quit your job, some of you might go buy a car, some of you might, you would start making decisions based on that there. That kind of news would change your life. Okay, that's what he's saying. He's saying this news is worth it. It's trustworthy. You can, you can bank on it. And this is why he says, I want you to insist on these things. Basically, it means keep teaching it, pushing it. This news about the mercy of Christ and his engagement in love and the gospel, keep teaching it. Why? There's a reason why. You see it right there in the text. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. That is the fruit of a right belief in the gospel. Okay? So the right belief in the gospel means if you trust it, you believe it, you would then be careful to devote yourself to good works. Now, let's unpack that. Here's what he's saying. When you see, be careful to devote yourself, he's saying this, okay, I hear this message about Christ, I hear this gospel message, that he engaged me out of mercy and love and kindness. When I was rebelling, he didn't respond in anger, he responded by saving me, he responded by kindness. Therefore, now that I believe that message, I'm going to change the way I view my space in this world. And I'm going to now make it my policy to actually be diligent, to be focused on doing good works. When you see careful to devote, the word careful means it's a word that you would use to mean uh, uh, being intentional with every step. That's what careful means. It's an intentionality with every step. It's a word you would use if I were saying, hey, there's a minefield out there, and if you step on the wrong one, you'll blow yourself up. And the way you know the minefield is that every mine has a red dot on it. So as you're walking through... Oh, thank you, Jeff. That is good. I was praying for water in the back of my brain because I'm losing my voice here. <clears throat> but if I said out in the field, everywhere you see a red spot, don't step on it, you will blow up if you do. And you had to walk through that field, of course you would be looking for red splotches. In fact, there'd be moments you'd be going, is that red? I think that's red. It looks a little burnt orange. Let's just skip it anyways, right? That's how you would be going through the field, right? That's what careful means. It means that you are actually saying at this moment that I am so committed to doing good works that I am actually focusing on it, and I'll use a word that might be an unhealthy word, I'm obsessing on it. Okay, not in some unhealthy sort of way, but I am actually in, intentionally trying to do this. <clears throat> that is what the gospel is supposed to result in in your life. Now, what is a good work? A good work literally means, the word good literally means lacking nothing. So a good work means you walk into a situation and you try to make up what's lacking. If there's anger in the room, then you're trying to bring peace. If there's sorrow in the room, you're trying to bring comfort. If there's fear in the room, you're trying to bring stability. If there are needs in the room, you're trying to meet the needs. 
As a kid, one of the most, I would say, things that impacted my life and my understanding of the church was my dad. Okay, now my dad isn't a great theologian at all, but I remember as a kid going to church with him, and he would say to me, we would, he would bring me to the church building a lot, and we did a lot of work there. I was kind of always there helping fix things, and well, not like I was fixing anything. I have no skills in that, but I was there watching and getting things out of the car for people who were fixing things. And, um, and, and as I would be doing that, uh, my dad would often say as we were driving to the church building, you know, Steve, uh, you don't just give your money to the church. You give your skills. You give your life. You serve people. This is what we get to do. We get to give our life and our money and everything and, and our skills and our time to the church. And sometimes I would come home from church, and as any kid would do, sometimes the service felt really long, right? The pastor, I just felt, was kind of bleeding on, and he wasn't ending. And, and you know, you're, you're nine years old, and you're like, ah, oh, end. Would you please end this sermon? And I remember feeling that sometimes as a kid and sitting there, like, thinking that, you know, the one or two minutes that longer that I, you know, maybe he preached 15 minutes, but it felt like, uh, you know, seven years. And, and I remember sometimes going home and going, Dad, that was so horrible. It was so bad. And uh, why do we have to go there? Right? I was really dramatic about it. And, and, he, and I really would sometimes be like, all out there. And he would say, you know, we don't go to church to get. We go to give. And when we give, we get. But if we go just to get, we don't get. And he would just say that all the time. We don't go. We, you want to get something out of church, you go there to give. Don't sit there and be all worked up about the fact that you were bored. You got the wrong mindset, right? That, he would just beat that into me. Now, whether he knows it or not, this is really Paul's heart here. The operating system is, I walk into a situation and I say, what is lacking here? How can I make it up? If I walk into a room, my goal should be, what is lacking? If I, so, so, and Paul is saying, this isn't just in the church building. This would be at work. You go to work. Your boss is having a freakout session. You could say, hey, he's freaking out. Stay out of his way. Go bury yourself in your desk. Or you could say, all right, I'm going to go into the belly of the beast. How can I help you? You know, a little scared, because you know once you open that door, he's going to let you know. Right? But he's saying, that's our mission, actually. That's our mission, to go into that situation. You go into the school situation. You go into your classroom. You go into the community. You go up to the mayor and you say, hey, I was reading in the newspaper, there's these 17 problems going on in our community. How can I help? See, that's what God does. He sees this massive problem. Humankind has rebelled against him. And he said, I'll resolve it. I'll resolve it. Because I'm made up of grace and mercy and love and compassion and wisdom and I will come up with a way of taking your punishment upon myself so that I could give you my spirit so that you don't have to be in rebellion. You can be one with me. Now, go model that. That's our operating system. That's our operating system in our community. It's our system at work, operating system at home, operating system at church. 
It is what we do. This is why Paul says stress these things. Why? So that people would get so obsessed with it that they actually would get up and say, all right, I'm going to go to work today and I'm going to go figure out how to make a difference here. How to make up what's lacking. I'm about ready to go home and I called home on my way home and I think an atom bomb blew up in my home and there's mass chaos in my home. I'm going to figure out, okay, God, I need to go home and make up what's lacking there. Instead of taking the long way home, you know, and getting in a phone call on the driveway, I'm going home. Why? Because that's what God did. We sinned, and he said, I'm going to send right away. On the day of the rebellion, he said, someone's coming through the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. That's what's going to happen. I'm meeting this need. I was just, this is your operating system. Be careful to devote yourself, saying, make this a way of life. Make this a way of life. Now, that's our first general order. Second general order then moves us to this next one, where he says, avoid an unprofitable way of life. Okay? Because now we have the contrast. The second general order then starts in verse 9, and he says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. Now let me make the connect between these two statements. He's saying if you understand the gospel correctly, it will lead, it'll work in your heart to such a way to say, wow, my mission is to respond to the world the same way God's responding to the world. God's responding with mercy, I'm going to respond with mercy. God's responding with love, I'm going to respond with love. God's responding with kindness, God solves problems, I'm going to solve problems. God engages rebellious sinners, I'm going to engage rebellious sinners. So now I want to do that. Now he says, but, but here's your second general order. But be careful, but avoid foolish controversies. Now what's he saying? I'll put it in their contact, con- context, and then we'll put it into ours. It's easy to get sidetracked off that mission. And you know how it's easy to get sidetracked off that mission? It's easy to get sidetracked off that mission when we start playing around with theology that leads us away from Jesus. We start jumping in. You know, for example, uh, there would have been uh, teachers in that day that would have talked about the fact that, that y- you want to give, right? We, we give to God, right? And we know there's, you know, uh, an offering that, that, that we give to the Lord because we're part of his kingdom. Well, there were some in that day were arguing about the fact that should you tithe off the herbs that you grow? If you grow herbs, if you, you know, if you got mint growing in your home, they literally were arguing, how much mint should you tithe? And people would sit around. Well, I don't think you should tithe off the herbs. I think you just tithe off of whatever you sell. Well, no, God provided herbs. You know, should you? And then it started becoming an argument. Should you do this? There are other people that got all caught up in uh, foolish controversies, meaning they would come up with like crazy thoughts and ideas from the Bible where they would say, um, you know, uh, if... If you're a member of this clan, then you must have this position in life, and therefore God's going to work separately in you. And they, they would just start making stuff up like that. And you just call them foolish controversies. They're just like arguments and discussions that we derive from the Scriptures, but they have no value because they don't lead you to God's ultimate ends. The gospel of God engaging this world and us engaging this world with the gospel. And he says, stay away from it. Crazy teachings about the law, this kind of stuff. It goes on and on. 
And it's true. It sidetracks us. It sidetracks us to, to no end. How many people want to come up with their ideas and their thoughts from the Bible? Let me give you an example of one uh, that I remember being a part of. Uh, I remember an argument. This was not here. So I was a young guy. And uh, there was a church where there were people who had this position about the Lord's table. This fits. We did the Lord's table this morning. And they had this. They, 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 this is what they said. This is a very sacred moment. And we'd say amen to that. And this isn't just, uh, just a, a practice that we have. It's a, a practice exalting Christ. And we'd say amen to that. Therefore, we should treat this table with respect. Right? So far, I'm tracking with that. Absolutely. Well, if we want to treat it with respect, then the people who are passing out the elements should treat it with respect. Okay. We're tracking, but I'm not sure where you're going with that. Therefore, now here's where the jump was made. This church literally said, therefore, if someone is passing out the elements and they're not wearing socks, they're showing disrespect. Okay? I was part of a meeting amongst the leadership team where somebody, one of the ushers who was passing out the Lord's table, it was summertime, he had dress pants on and dress sandals and no socks. And he was passing out the Lord's table without socks on. And there were people in the church bent out of shape. How can you show such disrespect to the Lord's table having your guys not wear socks? The leadership team had a special leadership meeting that Sunday night to discuss the issue. How do we address it with this guy? What do we say? Why wasn't the worship leader aware? Why didn't he stop him? Do we need to fire a worship leader? That he would actually ask, didn't he look and see? Everyone could see he didn't have socks on. This is true, by the way. I'm not, this isn't coming out of the craziness of my head. This is true story. And a leadership team spends a Sunday evening and a special Monday morning breakfast to discuss the issue. Now here's the question. What are you not doing when you do that? You are not engaging the world. You are so sidetracked. You are so caught up in such a foolish conversation. The moment someone tries to say, this is the behavioral standard, this is what this should be, this, right? And it happens. It happens. It so happens. It happens, and it can happen in our hearts. I I might have a preference about something. I might say, boy, I'd like it to look this way or that way. And all of a sudden, I can start making up this kind of stuff. And here's what he's saying. Avoid this. Don't go there. Do not go there. Because here's what happens when you go there. You're sidetracked. You're sidetracked. You, you're, you're not getting up in the morning and saying, how, how do I make up what's lacking? I'm sitting around watching people's feet as the Lord's table being passed out. The very, and, and, and of course the obvious question that probably half the room was thinking, what kind of socks did Jesus wear when he first did it, right? You know, some of you were thinking that, right? I mean, that would have been your argument. Like, you know, I don't think Jesus had a suit, a tie, or socks on when he did the first one. He was wearing a robe, okay? And so when you start going down those roads, you start saying, why are we on this? Why are we arguing about this? And the church has argued about this stuff throughout years. You could look throughout history, right? The first time the organ was introduced, do you remember what they called it? The devil's pipes. 
The organ was like secular music on steroids. It was the heavy metal of the day. It was like, you cannot put an organ in a church. You can't do it. It's rock and roll. They wouldn't have used that term, but it's what is played in the clubs, in the bars, in the pubs. We can't bring an organ into a church. And people spent years arguing over this. And Paul says, stop it. It's folly. Christ is engaging this world with kindness, grace, and mercy. Christ is at work with your neighbors in this community. And when we're caught up on socks at the Lord's table, we're missing what God is doing with the person down the road from you. Do you realize this? There are probably people in your neighborhood that the very Spirit of God is opening their eyes to the gospel. They could be living five doors down from you and they could be going through the worst crisis of their life and God could be opening their eyes. But we're sitting there on the phone going, did they have socks on? I can't believe they didn't have socks on. Can you believe this? What kind of church do we have? We're going to be liberal in a moment. Can you believe this? Next we'll go the Bible. We'll be throwing the Bible out. And that's what we're, when you spend your time on that, you're missing the very spirit of God at work three doors down from your house. This is why Paul says, avoid this stuff. Why? Don't quarrel about this stuff. Why? It's unprofitable. It serves nothing. And it's worthless. You achieve nothing. Nothing was gained at that church on that next Lord's uh, Supper Sunday when all the ushers had socks on. Nothing was gained. Christ wasn't worshipped anymore. Nothing was gained. He says, avoid it. It's worthless. Okay, so there's your second general order. And we need to be careful of this because it's true for our day. Changes, cultural changes, things happen, and all of a sudden we get bent out of shape and we want to argue over it. He says, stop it. Don't do it. Why? Because you see, your first general order is to devote yourself to making up what's lacking in people, to engage this world the same way God's engaging this world. That's your first general order. And, and you can't follow that first general order if you're, if you're ignoring the second general order. And we're caught up arguing on this. So now we get to the third general order now. What's the third one? Okay, because we got three of them. There's a third one. And the third one is stay away from divisive people. Stay away from dis- divisive people. Look at verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. Now, this is an interesting statement. As for a person who stirs up division, see, what happens when, when this is tying you into that second general order to avoid the, the controversies? Well, the controversies usually come from someone. Someone's stirring it up. There's someone who's been out of shape when they see no socks in the Lord's table. There's someone been out of shape. And what do they do? They stir it up. Stir it up means that, that they are literally going around amongst the body and they're saying, well, I, I, I'll give you another true example from, from my past. I was not on staff. I was attending this church, young guy, and uh, this guy you know, that I got to know in the church, he kind of sits down and he says, hey, you know, I've been doing a lot of studying on church governments, you know, elders, deacons, and how churches should be structured. Church polity, they call it. I've been doing a lot of study on church polity, and, and uh, I'm thinking that the current elder deacon structure we have is wrong. 
And here's what this says. And, and I'm thinking our church isn't biblical. And, and I'm thinking our church isn't right because of this. And he's got this little passage over here and this passage over here. And he's got this logical argument where basically he's starting to get me to question the leadership structure of the church. And now I'm sitting back going, huh, I wonder if we're right. Then he's going to the next person. Yeah, I've been doing this studying. And, you know, here's what it says over here. And here's what it says over here. Here's what it says over here. See, that's stirring it up. He's walking around trying to get people to follow his position. And he's going around saying, you know, I talked to three people, and they agree with me. And I talked to this person over here, and I talked to this person. And he says, okay, that's stirring it up. Now he says, this person who's stirring up division, warn them. Now before we unpack what that means, I want to show you something very interesting, something you might not know just by reading this text. Notice how it says this in verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division... The word division, you know what the word division actually is? The actual root word of the word division is heresy. In the first 200 years of the church, they called a heretic, not somebody that just had like a book that had bad doctrine in it. That's how we would define a heretic, right? If that person's a heretic, I would be defining it by their teaching, The word heresy is actually defined by anybody who's trying to break down the unity of the body. The early church took seriously the warning out of Ephesians 4. Preserve the unity of the church. Preserve it. It is essential that we remain one body because there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father, who's Father of everyone. They would have called a heretic anybody that would say, hey, you know what? I'm not sure they got this right over here. Hey, do you know what they did? Do you know what happened over there? I'm not certain this teaching is right. I'm not certain this is right. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? What do you think about this? And work in the room. Problem from the first day of the church. They called those people heretics. Heresy literally means division. That's what the word means. It isn't just a term you use for a doctrine or a person who teaches a doctrine. It's a word you use for an action when somebody tries to tear at the unity of the church. Now, usually they tear at the unity of the church with their teaching. They've got some pet teaching. This guy's trying to to get me to turn on the leadership of the church I was attending because he had some position about church leadership based on four or five passages out of the Old Testament and some book he read somewhere. And he, and, he, and he developed this whole system, and he was starting to get me to question the leadership of the church. And he started to get me to start breaking away. Hey, maybe this guy's right. Maybe this church I'm going to is wrong, based on this thing. And he says, now listen, when you find that person, you are not, you're to do something different. We're engaging the world with this kind of aggressive stature, right? You go into your unsaved boss's office to say, I'm here to help you, knowing your boss is going to be rough to deal with. And he's saying, you go do that, man. Go do that. That's what God does. But when you have the heretic, the divider in the church, the person who's coming up and saying, you know, I have this position over here. I have this, 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 right? And it's, and it's away from the essential message of Christ, the gospel, what he's done, everything that Paul laid out, 
in chapter 3, when that person's over here on some side little pet project, he says, don't hang with those people. Warn them twice and get away from them. What I should have said to that guy when he came up to me, I didn't know this at the time. I wish I would have. What I should have said to him was, you are stirring up division. Stop it. No, 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 blah, blah, blah. you are stirring, no, you're stirring up division. Stop it. No, 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 you don't understand. I'm no longer talking to you anymore. You say, is that a gospel answer? This is where the line is drawn with the divider. Why? Why is the line drawn with the divider? Look at verse 11. Knowing that such a person is warped, sinful, and self-condemned. Warp means off track. Off track. Sinful means outside the will of God. And self-condemned means that by the very nature of trying to divide the church, they are showing that they're not in line with the gospel. And they stand condemned. And if someone is doing that and stirring up division, they should not take confidence in their faith in Christ, their profession of faith. Because the gospel would never lead someone to do that. The gospel builds the unity of the church. It doesn't work against the unity of the church. The gospel understands we are one in Christ. We're not one in our preferences. The goal is not for me to get you to like everything I like in this world. The goal is for me to love you in the same love that Christ has loved me, and you love me with the same love that Christ has loved you. And on that basis, we will stand unified. Even if you like country music or the Packers. (laughs) Even if you like that. Those things. I can still love you with sacrificial love. (laughs) that's what he's saying but if I want to stir up division and if someone wants to stir up division warn them and run that's what he says warn them and run that to me is the issue of the church of our day that is the issue that will tear apart our church tear apart any church the dividers come in and they start pulling creating cliques pulling people away do you know this do you know this I read this da 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 and they're working the room, what we have to have is the courage to say, stop it, or I will no longer talk to you. It's going to take courage. But, that is, but the preservation of the unity of the brotherhood is worth it. It's worth it. We're one in Christ. We want to preserve that. So let's wrap it up here. Three general orders. Pursue a profitable life. Right, a life that's seeking good of those around us. Avoid an unprofitable life. Don't get caught up in all these theological arguments and debates and preferences. And stay away from the heretics, the people who want to create division by trying to get you to align with their preferences. Stay away from them. Warn them and stay away. Now as we conclude, let me read the last few verses and you will see how they are going to apply this. This is the application of this book to the church uh, in Crete. Notice what he says. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, 
for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. What does that mean? It means doing good, doesn't it? Remember? Make it, doing good means you, you make sure nothing, wherever it's lacking, you make up the difference. That's what he's saying. Do good there. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Don't get caught up in all the silliness because there are real needs, people who are really hurting, people that have legitimate problems, bigger than whatever little preference that you're dying on. Don't get caught up in that because those people need to experience, hear, feel, and absolutely grasp the mercy and love of God through the way we're going to treat them. Make sure that people devote themselves to this. Do it with these guys that are, that, that are coming. And make sure your church does it. That's the application. So let me just give you a couple of questions. These are questions that, for myself that I want to share with you. These are my application questions. You can choose to use these or other ones, whatever the Spirit leads you. But how I've kind of applied this is I'm asking myself some questions. What is lacking in my home? What's lacking in my home? Right? I, I want to do it there. How, what need can I fill in my home? What's lacking in my home? Second question, what is lacking in my work? If you're in school, you could say, what's lacking in my school? Wherever your context is. But, but when I go out into the community, what's lacking? Or, I mean, when I go to wherever I work, how can I make up what's lacking there? What's lacking in my community? You know, the reality is that God does want us to engage our community. Maybe we read through our newspaper. Let's read through the Sycamore, DeKalb, Malta, Kingston newspapers, figure out what's going on. Call council member. Call the mayor. Call the police chief. How can I help? What's one thing I can do that would make up a need for you, that would fill a gap? Right? How can I make up what's lacking? And then the final question, right? So it's simple. What's lacking at home, work, community? And then the final question is, who do I need to warn? Who have I given an ear to? that is breeding division that I shouldn't give an ear to anymore. And then we pray, God, give me the courage to do that because that is really, really hard. Super hard. But it's our general orders. This will take us a lifetime to work on, won't it? But it would be a worthwhile way to spend your life little vapor you have if you just committed to these three things be an amazing vapor you would have so let's pray here together god i thank you for this wonderful passage it's a challenging passage for us all because it causes us to think about how we engage it causes us to make a connection lord for me it has it's really taught me there's a connection between what i believe and how i engage It's caused me to remember the urgent needs of those around me. It's caused me to take my eyes off myself, my preferences. It's caused me to see that you have left me here to show the world the way that you have overcome sin and rebellion. It's caused me to see how important you take the unity of the church.
It's caused me to hold to the value of the cross in a way that is bigger than I could ever imagine. So Lord, help us. We can't do this on our own. Without grace, without mercy, without the power of Your Spirit, Lord, we can't do this. It's, our instincts go against this, but Lord, help us. God, I pray for, that we would have courage to warn people. I pray, God, that we would have strength to love people. I pray, Lord, that we would have endurance to engage. But Lord, I pray that this operating system would change us. Thank you, God. It's a trustworthy thing, so may it be true of us. Lord, change us by your grace and your mercy. In Christ's name, amen.